Welcome back to another episode of the Bank Shop Podcast. I'm Kale. I'm Andrew. And recently, uh, you know, it was Christmas. We took a little break, obviously, for Christmas. But on Christmas, it is primetime NBA basketball. And it wasn't quite as um, – because, you know, there was all the Twitter memes about all these NBA games are just going to be a bunch of G League players. We did get to see most of the superstars. But let's start out first with the game that was most of, I'd say, most affected by superstar play, Knicks versus Hawks. I didn't watch much of this one because Trey Young was there, and the whole reason this game was played on Christmas was Trey Young's return to Madison Square Garden, and he did not play. So naturally, the Knicks ended up winning 101 to 87 behind 27 points from Julius Randle. Um, the Hawks' leading scorer was DeLon Wright. That's how bad off they were with COVID-19. Um, Andrew, do you have any thoughts on this game whatsoever? Uh, well, first of all, I want to say no one – I don't think a ton of people watch this game except for Knicks and Hawks fans. No one wants to watch Julius Randle uh, on Christmas. But well, I've, one positive I want to say, uh, first, Quentin Grimes for the Knicks I think was a very good pick late in the draft. He was good at Houston. And he seems like he's going to turn into a very good scorer. Not very good, but a, a solid role player who can put up points. So, good on their part. He played well in this game, 15 points, uh, 14 shots. But still, you know, he's a rookie. And then Kemba Walker had his triple-double. This was talked about a lot. He won uh, Eastern Conference Player of the Week. because of, Not because of this, because he had a really good game earlier in the week. But he had, ten, he had the Dennis Smith Jr. triple-double. He had 10 assists, 10 rebounds, or 12 assists, 10 rebounds, 10 points on 3 for 12 shooting. So I know people wanted to hype this up as like a feel-good story because Kemba had a triple-double, but it wasn't a very impactful one. Overall, there's not much to say about this game. I didn't watch a ton of it. I watched part of it and then got really, really bored really early, so I turned it off. (laughs) I will say, though, Kemba Walker, since he's been a a DMP, has been really good. his stats over the last five games are 25 points per game, seven rebounds, and six assists off pretty passable efficiency, 42% from the field, 41% from three. That's off of 10 three-point attempts. So at the coach of the year, Tom Thibodeau, is – dude, I mean, I honestly don't know what's wrong with Tom Thibodeau here recently. His defense is – isn't that good? The Knicks, as general, aren't they good? And clearly, Kimball Walker is currently making him look like a fool. But um, on to what I think was the best uh, Christmas Day game. The Bucks beat the Celtics seven, 117 to 113. Andrew, what are your thoughts uh, on this game? So, this game was really ugly for a while. The Celtics, I believe, led by 19. At- yeah, 19 was, was their biggest lead. So 19 points. I thought it was over at that point, but I guess I shouldn't have counted out Giannis because we all know <laughs> how good he is. Um, but, I mean, there's not much – there's a lot to say, actually. But Giannis went absolutely insane in the second half of this game. He finished the game with 36 points, 12 rebounds, 5 assists, which will end up being, I believe, tied for the second most points on Christmas. It might be alone. I don't no, remember LeBron Patty. had 39. I know he had 39, but I don't remember if Patty Mills had 34 or 36. Regardless. James uh, Harden had 36, so it is tied for a second. He had an absolutely insane day. He only played 30 minutes in this game, but he did absolutely everything he could. 
you know, in the clutch, Robert Williams earlier in the game dunked on Giannis, and then later in the game, when it actually mattered, goes mm-hmm. up for the dunk, and Giannis miraculously turns around and blocks the shot. I have no idea how. The He wasn't the only person on the Bucks to be really, really good in this game. Drew Holiday also had a great game, 17 points, 8 for 14 shooting. Bobby Portis had 16 points off the bench, 10 rebounds. We love Bobby Portis. Last year we talked about him a lot in the playoffs, uh, how impactful he can be even if he doesn't do a ton. But, I mean, it's just – Giannis is insane. He improves – or he improves every year. He proves every game why he is a top three player in the NBA. Yeah, I'll say that. He's a top three player in the NBA. They, I, He's just incredible. This was a great game to watch, and – uh, I'll let you talk about it. Uh, so, yeah, Giannis Antetokounmpo was pretty much the most impactful player on the game on both sides of the ball, like he usually is. Uh, they were down – there is one tweet. Hang on. I have to find this from Stat Muse because it is pretty ridiculous just to just to physically show you Giannis's impact from stats in this game. So, when he got into the game, the Bucks were down 11 with about five minutes to go. Pretty much most people would give that like two more minutes and then take out the starters, but here it is. The Bucks, oh, excuse me, the Celtics were up 13 with five minutes left. It was Giannis dunk, Giannis dunk, Giannis assist, Giannis mid-range, Jalen Brown hit a two-pointer, Giannis free throws, Giannis dunk, Giannis layup, Jalen Brown free throws. Uh, Matthews hit a ridiculous three. Bucks take the lead, and then Giannis with the clutch block, and the Bucks ended up winning this game. Clearly, with Giannis Antetokounmpo having games like this, keep in mind this was fresh off of two weeks gone from COVID nineteen. How much MVP buzz does Giannis Antetokounmpo deserve? I think that so it's weird. I I saw, um, so Basketball Reference does theirs. And theirs is really weird because they do some combination of stats. I don't know what they use. But he was number one in their rankings. And it made me this made me think of this earlier. So he's played 27 games, which is the same as Kevin Durant. I believe it might be like two less than Steph Curry. So that's not the question. It's just so hard because I everyone knows Kevin Durant's been amazing this year. Jokic has been great, but he's the eighth seed. And or I think he might be up to six, but still, that's not good enough to win an MVP. Steph Curry's been really, really inefficient recently, even on Christmas Day, which we'll talk about later. I think he has a serious and legitimate argument. First of all, I think he has a good argument to be the MVP this year. I don't think that's too mm-hmm. far-fetched to say. Uh, but I think I, I, he might be second in my rankings right now. I, just everything he does for this Bucks team is unmatched. He's the best two-way player in basketball. And when you just incorporate everything, I, I think having him top two, I don't think that's really a hot take. I think that should be the, the norm at this point. Um, but another thing on the books I want to touch about is in the past two weeks, Drew Holiday has been averaging 26 points per game, eight assists, five rebounds, and he's been shooting 57% from the field. 35% from three, and 61% in the paint as a point guard. Keep in mind, Giannis shoots 58% in the paint. Drew Holiday is finally looking like uh, – how much money are they paying him? $35 million a year? He's finally looking like a $35 million man. If Drew Holiday could keep this play up, especially since Chris Middleton's play is taking a dip, 
how impactful do you think he will be for the Bucks down the line? Because I think a Drew Holiday playing like this is is huge and is exactly the thing the Bucks need to repeat championship. I agree. Chris Middleton is I, recently he has bet. I mean, I don't know his Christmas Day stat line isn't that bad, but he played really bad in this game when we were watching it. I know there were a few times he texted me and said, "Take Chris Middleton off the court." Yeah, I wanted him to <laughs> But, I mean, Drew Holiday's impact is obviously going to be huge for them down the stretch. Even in the playoffs last year when he had a few games stretch, I don't know what his final numbers were for the entire playoff, but, I mean, there were a couple games where he was really, really, really bad. He came up huge for them in the Game 7 against the Nets. He hit some big shots. Uh, him playing well is, like you said, vital to the Bucks to winning, uh, repeating, and they he, they're gonna need everything that they can get out of him. If he can continue to do this, the Bucks are a scary team come playoff time. Um, yeah, I agree. I I think the Milwaukee Bucks playing at their best are still the best team in basketball. I I don't know if that's a hot take. I know the Warriors are playing amazing, and I know the Suns are playing great. But uh, like we we said a few episodes, or like I said a few episodes back, I just don't think they have anyone to stop Giannis Antetokounmpo. But I want to I want to flip this over to the loser side. Something that should be really concerning for Celtics fans. Jason Tatum has played 37 clutch minutes, which is the most in the NBA. His stats in said minutes are seven for 25 field goal, 28 percent, one from nine three pointer, 11 percent, three assists, four turnovers. Look, everyone's been talking about the Celtics blowing it up, right? And I, I truly don't think that's going to happen. I think they're going to keep going with Tatum and Brown. But with Brown – I mean, excuse me, with Tatum playing the way he is right now, would you trade him before you traded uh, Brown? I, I, I don't think so. I think Jason Tatum is the future of this franchise. I know that he, like you brought up, his clutch stats have been really bad this year. But I, when I look at Jason Tatum, and I think when a lot of people look at Jason Tatum, I see MVP caliber potential in him. When I look at Jalen Brown, I think he's an all-NBA caliber player at the peak of his career. But I, Jason Tatum's ceiling is just so much higher that I don't – I don't. he's really struggled this year, not even just in the clutch. He's started he's off – In general, really he's bad. not been a great yeah, player. I mean, he's been inconsistent. Jalen Brown, uh, his stats over the past couple of games are 34-6-3 with five three-pointers made. 35 and 5 with three three pointers, 23, 4 and 5, five three pointers, 29 and 2, 19, 4 and 5. I mean, as of right now, Jalen Brown is the better basketball player. I don't think anyone can mm-hmm. debate that. But when you're talking about if the Celtics blow it up, which I, neither of us think they will, people who are saying that are just, they're stuck in 2K or something. <laughs> I don't know. But Jason Tatum is in a huge slump right now, and even then he's not playing too horribly bad. I mean, he's averaging twenty, about 26, 8, and 4. His efficiency is not that good. It's 45 and 37, 82 splits. But Jason Tatum, like you said, can be a legitimate superstar in this league, and Jalen Brown is just an all-star. I want to touch on one more thing on the Celtics before we move on. Uh, Peyton Pritchard was a DNP a lot for the Celtics this year when everyone was healthy. I don't really know why Ime Udoka decided to go and not play him in a lot of these games because he was pretty solid last year. He was really good in this game. Again, I not really good, but 6 for 14, eh, but 50% from three on eight attempts, 16 points, five rebounds, five assists. This is a guy that 
Ime Udoga has to put in the lineup when everyone's healthy. I really don't know why they wouldn't play him. I know Dennis Schroeder, and I know, I guess, Marcus Smart, Romeo Langford. But mm-hmm. I think he needs to find minutes for Peyton Pritchard for this team to, you know, continue. I, I mean, I guess just get successful because they're not continuing success. They're below 500 right now. But, uh, yeah, that's my little tidbit on the Celtics. <laughs> on to the next um, game which was the Warriors versus the Suns. This is now the third time around we've seen this game on national television, rightfully so. But the Warriors ended up winning this one 116 to 107. Not, I don't really think it's as close as this score would indicate, only being a nine-point game. It felt like the Warriors were really in control for most of this game. But um, one, Steph Curry has yet to play amazing versus the Suns. I know he had 33 points, but his efficiency has been horrible versus the Suns. I want to get to this should be the shoe in Western Conference Finals, uh, barring any upsets in the playoffs, which I don't see so far. But, Andrew, are you at all concerned with Seth Curry's inefficiency versus the Suns when it comes to a seven-game playoff series? I think it's a, it's a huge question, and I we have to wait to see with Clay Thompson when he comes back, even though I thought he was supposed to be back. but that I, Yeah, I, I thought he was supposed to be back at Christmas also. That confused me. And then I saw a doctor, like a well-known, I forget his name, someone on Twitter that's pretty popular doctor-wise, and he just tweeted out Clay Thompson very ominously, didn't put any context, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I think it, it does have to be a concern because when you play, uh, in the regular season it's hard to judge because people have games every other day. You don't get a ton of time to game plan, but it feels like the Suns almost have not figured out because he's still putting up over 30 points. But it feels like they've found a way to make him less effective than he normally is. and That way is Mikhail Bridges. <laughs> exactly. And I love Mikhail Bridges. I talked about him a lot last year during the playoffs. But, Steph, I, I, when the Suns have a long, when, a long time to plan for him, a seven-game series, I think it is kind of concerning. Like, how will Steve Kerr – and Steve Kerr is a great coach. I'm sure he'll be able to make adjustments. But how will Steph be able to handle Mikael Bridges and Monty Williams' plan against Steph Curry? I think it does have to be concerned going into it. I don't think you can ignore it. Yeah, it is super concerning for me because it's like Steph Curry, just like any other human being in the NBA, has off-night shooting. But how many times do we see three different games with decent times apart where Steph Curry shot bad? So this isn't just an off night. This is likely the Stephen Curry you're going to get versus the Suns. And it seemed like role players have stepped up huge in these games um, every single time these two teams have met so far. And the one who stepped up this time was Wilt Chamberlain Jr., a.k.a. Otto (laughs) Porter Jr. He had uh, 19 points. 8 for 13 field goal, 3 from 7 from the three-point line. He was a plus 16 in the box score. Otto Porter Jr. felt like he couldn't miss in this game, and it came out of nowhere. It was all pretty condensed. Uh, What are your thoughts on that, Andrew? So, uh, Otto Porter is – I remember when they signed him, people were pretty excited about it. I didn't really get it, but, I mean, he – I did not know he was capable of – heating up like this. I didn't know he was a microwave like that. He <laughs> killed the Suns in this game. The Suns had, like you said, it felt like they were already getting killed, but Otto Porter really put it over the top, like clinched this game. Down the stretch, we usually, you would think Steph would have the ball in his hands, 
but Otto no, Porter it was, was Otto calling Porter for Jr. it. Yeah, Steve Kerr has arguably the MVP of the league, and he said, let's put the ball in Otto Porter's hands back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back to back to back to back possessions, and it worked. I can't fault him for it, but it was kind of a crazy game plan, uh, and I mean, it worked out, like you said, Will Chamberlain Jr., because he looks exactly like him, came through in the clutch in this game. <laughs> so the Warriors reclaim the top seed in the West with this win. That It seems like it's going to be the Suns and the Warriors battling it out uh, for the rest of the season. They're, they're neck and neck. But with that being said, the Warriors now are the top seed in the West as well as the top seed in the NBA. Going past just the standings, how truly good do you think that the Golden State Warriors are? I think that they are I, – they got to be the title favorites right now because if you look at their roster, I mean, they have talent. They, I don't think that they have the most talent in the NBA. I think I, both the Bucks and the Nets both have more talented rosters, but the issue is the Warriors have Klay Thompson coming back, and we don't really know what we're going to get out of him, but we all know the chemistry between Draymond, Clay, and Steph. We know what they're capable of, and they have the best coaching of any – playoff caliber team this year by a long shot I mean Monty Williams is really good too but I think Steve Kerr is the best coach of any playoff team people can say Greg Popovich if you still believe that but again Mm. the Spurs aren't making the playoffs so I they have that advantage with them they have Steph Curry who has a ton of playoff there they have the most championship uh DNA on their roster that's the word with the obviously their big three together Steph is not a great playoff performer, not a great, you know, clutch time performer in the playoffs. But, I mean, he still has more experience than a lot of other guys. I think the Warriors have to be the favorite to win the NBA Finals right now. I don't – they aren't personally my pick, but I, I they got to be the favorite right now. They've looked by far the best out of anyone in the NBA this year. I think they have definitely looked like the best regular season team, but when it gets to seven-game series, I'm still concerned with a lot of components. When we talked about this segment a few uh, weeks, maybe it's already a month ago, but um, I, I said some things. I'm a little concerned with how they're going to handle a big man. So when they get into a seven-game series with the Suns, I mean, Steph Curry, we've already talked about the inefficiency versus the Suns. They also showed that a big man, a truly talented big man, could really give them troubles given that they're a small ball team. And I still feel that way about the Bucs, uh, how I think they match up poorly versus the Bucs, who are a huge team. I mean, one through five, even in their depth, the Bucs are massive. And the Nets, I mean, the Nets with Kyrie Irving, we'll see how that goes. But, God, that's just so much talent to beat. I don't know if you could sit there and rely on role players to beat. I mean, the, the Warriors have a big three with Clay, Draymond, and Curry. I mean, that's what we call it. But Draymond isn't a all-star talent anymore. I mean, he's a defensive player of the year, but and we've yet to see how Clay Thompson comes back. Do you really think that's a big three that competes with what the Nets can roll out? Because I don't. Um, it, it's just when it gets the, here, the playoffs are so much different from the regular season, right? Teams could be an amazing in the regular season. We've seen that with the Jazz every single year. Um, Seven-game series are very long-winded. It's just a different type of basketball, and I'm still concerned with the Warriors in a seven-game series, which I guess will sound foreign to some people. I mean, I know it's it's Steve Kerr, it's, it's the Warriors, it's uh, Curry and Draymond, et cetera, but 
there's just holes in this roster that I think will start to prop up in the playoffs that aren't getting exposed just yet, at least to their fullest extent. But speaking of the Nets, they were the next game. They played the Lakers. Now, this was the COVID game. At least we got Russ, uh, Harden, and LeBron. But I, I don't know if Russ having Russ was a good thing for the <laughs> Lakers today. The Nets did win 122 uh, to 115, barring a massive choke. What were they up? Uh, 105 to 84 at one point. Yeah, they were up 20 plus points. Yeah, and the Lakers. Oh, God. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) ESPN ads. Um, But, yeah, they were up 20-plus points, and they nearly – I mean, this game got tied at one point. But Nicholas Claxton, I'll start off with that. Mm. Nine points um, and six rebounds doesn't really jump out on the stat sheet, but he had the play of the game. He posterized LeBron to take the lead when the game was tied. Um, I honestly did not know that Nicholas Claxton had that in him, and he's starting to become a legitimate starting center for a championship-quality NBA team after being a D, uh, DMP for a long time. So, yeah, he gets the Clax or he gets the Capella comparison all the time just because Harden said he loves to throw lobs to him. But I – our friend Blake gets brought up a lot on this podcast because we talk about basketball a lot with him. But I remember he and I was guilty of this too. Uh, I said that he wasn't that important to the Nets this year uh, to Kale actually. He but did say that to me. Yeah. Ever since that happened, and ever since our friend Blake told me that Nicholas Claxton sucked when we were bringing up uh, mock trades, he has been really, really good for this Nets team. He is a versatile defending or defensive center. He can guard. I don't think he can guard a ton of point guards, but he has shown that he can cover player point guards like bigger point guards like Luka Doncic in very clutch spots. He locked Luka up at one point, point. Uh, and you know this Nets team—they've been really good defensively this year. But he's obviously going to be a huge part of that. His last four games, he's averaged eleven points, which isn't crazy, but I—it's definitely improvement. Four rebounds, not great, but two and a half blocks per game in the over his last four. And obviously, he posterized LeBron in this game. He is a legitimate center, like Kale said. And I think people are starting to realize that he can be a solid contributor to this Nets title run. Now, let's get to the elephant in the room. Look, I am exacerbated from talking about the Lakers. If you know, earlier in the season, we spent basically every episode saying something about the Lakers because it was just a circus. And not just us, but most um, uh, non-televised media, like a bunch of YouTubers, have stopped talking about the Lakers because it's so played out. Obviously, the national televised media is just never going to stop talking about the Lakers no matter what. But... You know, on Christmas Day, we had to watch them, and now we have to talk about them again. Russell Westbrook, 4 for 20 shooting, 0 from 3 from 3. 13 points, 12 rebounds, 11 assists. Ooh, he got the triple-double. Negative 23 plus minus. I mean, Andrew, what are your thoughts on Russell Westbrook's performance and the Lakers moving forward? So while I was watching this game uh, with my dad, we're both Nets fans, and LeBron hit those two threes at the end of this game. I don't want to use the language that people call it, but you know LeBron quite frequently does that, where he just 
pulls out from fuck you three. Yeah, there we go. Pulls out from limitless range. You say no. There's just no way LeBron hits us, and then he does. He really. And I was convinced this game is over. Uh, We choked this lead away. I can't believe that I have to deal with this, but at least I get to push my KD MVP narrative. And then Russell Westbrook leaves Patty Mills, who is leading the NBA in three-pointers made this season (laughs) and is shooting one of the highest percentages in the NBA from three, wide open in the corner. So the Nets make that three. And then you go to the other side and – Russell Westbrook gets set up for a wide open dunk, and what does he do? He gets rim stuffed. An athletic finisher gets rim stuffed in the clutch. You absolutely cannot make it up. Uh, we have spent time and time again making fun of Russell Westbrook and saying that he is a bad part of this team, but he has just straight up turned into a negative on this team. There's nothing. He went from being a superstar into a role player at this point, honestly, and he's not a good one. He's a negatively impactful role player if the lakers want to win a championship they have to get him off of their team there's a tweet uh from the lake yo as a really popular lakers twitter that says retweet if the lakers should trade russell westbrook and it has uh about twelve thousand retweets and counting uh so it seems like laker nation really wants russell westbrook gone Look, this wouldn't have been a problem if you listened to the Bank Shop podcast to start with and never traded for Russell Westbrook to start with. But I digress. Russell Westbrook was starting. To, it seemed like, you know, the rust cycle. We're getting into the colder months. And that's when Russell Westbrook is like the greatest basketball player ever before he melts down in the playoffs. And he was starting to play well. Don't get me wrong. I said like two episodes ago that Russell Westbrook has been a good basketball player for the Lakers. And it's just going all downhill since. And this was the climax of it. An absolutely, unbelievably bad game. The triple-double cannot save this one. This was a pathetic performance. And I just want to say straight up that the Lakers are a bad team. They have bad players. They have a bad coach. They have no assets. If LeBron James was not on this team, this was like, what, a 20-win basketball team? Yeah. It's the LeBron is the only thing keeping this team relevant, that and them being the Lakers. But this is going to be like a play in team. If they get a bye, they're going to be a first round exit. This is just a bad basketball team, and there's nothing they could do to fix it. I mean, how many Russell Westbrook trades? They're not going to trade Anthony Davis, even though, you know, maybe they should. They can't move on from their old assets. That's what you get for signing nothing but old assets, basically. Their younger assets are just embarrassing themselves here. Recently, Taylor Horton Tucker, who was supposed to be, like, the most valuable asset in the NBA, if you ask Laker fans in the offseason, has been, like, bad this year, just straight up bad. Malik Monk, uh, he's been really good, actually. He was 20 points off the bench, and he was one of the few um, positives in the Lakers plus minus on their box score. But he's the, your best fit on this team. Why would you trade him? There's just no room for improvement for the Lakers. I mean, what what rust trades are out there? The only matching contract and matching caliber of player is John Wall at this point. Are we doing another Russ and John Wall trade? No. So the Lakers are just gonna keep being bad. Um, and the Nets, the Nets are just gonna keep being good. Sadly, um, I, 
I want to talk about them for one second, uh, the Nets, because uh, earlier in the season, I mean, rightfully so, James Harden was under a lot of scrutiny. He was averaging, uh, I believe, a career low since his OKC days, 21 points per game, and he was shooting 40% from the field. Even his true shooting percentage was below 60% for the first time in his career. But uh, in this game, 36 points, 10 rebounds, 10 assists, the triple-double, whatever. He had a really bad fourth quarter, but he still looked really good in this game. And then today, I know we're on Christmas, but this game just finished up. And it's on topic, very important. He had 39 points, 15 assists, and 8 rebounds. So over his past two games, he's averaging 37.5 points per game. Over around 50 or 49% from the field. It might even be 50. It is 50. It's actually exactly 50% from the field. Nine rebounds and 12 and a half assists coming back from COVID. I think that's huge for the Nets because if he does not play well, obviously, and they only have Kyrie for away games, it's scary because Kevin Durant can only do so much. But if this is the version of James Harden that the Nets can get for the rest of the season, I think that they're back to con- or title, not necessarily favorites, but they're definitely right in the conversation with the Bucks and the Warriors. So I just wanted to say James Harden might be back, and I'm sure we'll follow up on this next week. But that's my little uh, part about James Harden. I have to get it out there. Uh, and on to the last game, uh, the late, late spot game. The Jazz beat the Lucas Mavs 120-116. to uh, Donovan Mitchell had a really good game, 33 points. Kristaps Porzingis continued having a good – he's having a really good season – uh, 27 points, 9 rebounds. Uh, no one watched this game. Uh, <laughs> there was really no reason for this to be a Christmas Day game. If You you should have given the um, the late-night spot to Jokic, since he is the reigning MVP. And especially with no Luka in this game, no one watched it. So we're going to move on <laughs> to the NFL, who also had a Christmas Day game. Um, but in the NFL... Uh, it's really late into the season. Um, week 16, we are now in week 17, which is no longer the last week of the regular season since it's now a week 18. Weird. But, huh? I said weird. It's weird. Yeah, it is really weird to think about. Um, but who are the real contenders in each conference as we are basically into the end of the season now? Teams are officially starting to get eliminated from the playoffs, and everything is really starting to clean itself up. Who do you think the real contenders are in the conferences? So – the NFC, I think, is the Packers to take. Now that the Bucks, Leonard Fournette is hurt. I don't know how long he's supposed to be out, but he's banged up. Mike Evans hurt his hamstring. He'll be back. And he has COVID. Yeah. Mike Evans hurt his hamstring, but he'll be back eventually. Uh, he'll be back for the playoffs. But again, hamstring injuries are a nagging injury. You have no idea how it's going to affect him. A big receiver that uses his physicality. And then Chris Godwin tears his ACL. And Shaq Barrett hurts his knee this Sunday. The Bucks are very quickly crumbling. And there were my picks to win the NFC just a week ago. But now every single key player on their team except for Tom Brady is hurt. So I don't trust in them anymore. I know it's bad to bet against the Tom Brady-led team. But I don't think they're serious contenders with all these injuries. So I think the Packers are the clear-cut favorite in the NFC. I do believe that the Dallas Cowboys, who just absolutely dismantled the Washington football team on primetime, final score of this game is 56-14. Washington scored a garbage late touchdown. And the Cowboys, I believe, had 56 at halftime. They're scary. When they're playing good football, they can beat literally anyone in the NFL. 
So I think the, the Packers and the Cowboys are the two teams in the NFC that can win it. In the AFC, I know it's boring. I know there was a point this year where everyone thought Patrick Mahomes was finished and the Chiefs are finished. What are they going to do? They are the favorite in the AFC. They are clearly the best team in the AFC, if not the entire NFL right now. They just destroyed the Steelers, who I, I don't think the Steelers are a good team, but they're a playoff in the Hunt team, 7-7-1. Seven, seven, and one. Just destroyed them on Sunday without Travis Kelsey, probably the best tight end in the NFL. So I think they're the clear-cut favorite in the AFC. And then I'll be a homer here. Uh, I believe that the Indianapolis Colts are the biggest rival to the Chiefs and the other contender in the AFC. They are 8-2 and two over the last 10 games. We obviously know that Jonathan Taylor is an MVP caliber running back. If he doesn't win it, he is going to be in the conversation for it. They are really good at not turning the ball over. I believe that they have seven team turnovers this year, like seven team, not team. Uh, turnovers. Carson Wentz has five interceptions. Jonathan Taylor has not lost a fumble. I think uh, they've lost a few fumbles here and there, but they're the best team at not turning the ball over, and they're also the best team at forcing turnovers in the NFL. They just beat the Cardinals, who a few weeks ago were the clear-cut favorite to win the Super Bowl without Darius Leonard, their best defensive player, without four, without five of their six offensive linemen. <laughs> they were missing both of their starting safeties, they were missing so much, and they still managed to beat this Arizona Cardinals team. They're the biggest threat to the Chiefs. They're they're built to win in December, in the cold months when you need to run the ball. It's hard to pass the ball. They're built to win in January. Obviously. So it's a little overrated in the modern football, I'm not going to lie. Well, if you look at the Bucks last year, they weren't a running team the regular season, but the reason they succeeded so much in the playoffs was they ran the ball really well, let, you know, playoff Lenny. Uh, but the, the thing, the biggest part of the Colts being built for January is they don't turn the ball over. And when you don't turn the ball over and you trust your great defense to force turnovers, it's a recipe for a winning. So those are the four teams that I think can win the Super Bowl this year. And, yeah, they, yeah, they're my picks. It's bad to bet against Belichick, bad to get against bet against Brady, but I'm going to do both of those things. <laughs> so for me, um, yeah, I'm going to start in the NFC. I'm going to say the Rams, the team you didn't say. The Rams are basically the closest thing we have to like an on-paper football super team. I mean, it's just countless big names on that Rams team. And Matthew Stafford has been playing pretty poorly here recently, not going to lie. But I think the Rams are still a ridiculously good football team. Um. Sean McVay is going to be one of the best head coaches in the playoffs behind Reed and Belichick, but he's going to be the big, uh, the best head coach in the NFC. Uh, I'm going to go and say the Packers. I think it is the Packers um, conference to lose. And I'm just not a big believer in the Cowboys. Honestly, the Cowboys obviously have a really good record 11, four, which is tied for second best in the NFC. But I just, for some reason, cannot put my faith in the Cowboys. So I think the two contenders in the NFC are truly the Packers and the Rams, leaning heavily towards the Packers. But in the AFC, I think, is the better conference. I think that the Chiefs, obviously, who are probably the best team in football right now, are clearly a contender. And I'm going to say the Bills. I'm going to toot my own horn because when we had the Bills-Patriots episode, I said the Bills win this game in normal weather conditions. And I'll be damned. The Bills beat the Patriots 33-21 to in normal weather conditions. I think the Bills are still a really good football team. Here recently, um, well, not recently anymore, but 
they're on a two-game win streak. But they did drop a few games. They dropped one to the Colts, to the Titans, and then the Patriots and Bucks back-to-back. And, and what looked like the best team in the NFL in the Bills was people gave up on them. I'm still going to ride the Bills train. I love Josh Allen. I love everything the Bills have going for them right now. And the Colts. I do think the Colts are a good team. I don't think Andrews being a homer there really. Um, Carson Wentz is playing some of the best football in his career. Jonathan Taylor is playing. I think as of today, he's the best player in football, or he's damn sure playing mm. like it. Um, 17 touchdowns, 1.6K yards on the ground. And then they are a good running team, and they have a really good defense. So if they're healthy, I think they're definitely a component. But those are really the only teams I see being true contenders. Uh, so it's the Chiefs, the Bills, and the Colts in the AFC, and then the Packers and the Rams in the NFC. But on to the, um, the Cardinals. Like you said earlier, the Cardinals started out, looked like the Super Bowl favorites, but now they've fallen down to 10-5 and five when they were, were once, what, 9-0? Um, how legit do you think that the Arizona Cardinals are? And is it time to hit the panic button on them? I think it, it has to be. So... <laughs> At one point in the season, Cliff Kingsbury, we'll start here, was the odds favorite, Vegas favorite, by far, coach of the year. And that's going to happen when your team is, like you said, they they were there 9-2. and two. They had a crazy record at one point. It's going to happen. But Cliff Kingsbury, I think a lot of people understand, is not a good head coach at all. I believe he's holding this Cardinals team back a lot, but he's going to stay their head coach, obviously. If you take that away, DeAndre Hopkins is out for at least the rest of the regular season. He might be able to come back for the AFC champion or AFC NFC championship game, but that's still yet to be seen. He just had knee surgery. I mean, how realistic is it? I'm no doctor, but we'll see. And without DeAndre Hopkins, I, he was having a relatively under he was underperforming for himself statistically, but. I mean, his impact has been felt. Kyler Murray the past four games, so I believe DeAndre Hopkins missed two or three of these. He, Kyler Murray looked like an MVP candidate earlier in the year. Past four games, 120 passing yards, 380 passing yards, zero touchdowns, two interceptions. 250 mm. passing yards, one touchdown, one interception. 240 passing yards, one touchdown, zero interceptions. He has, I, I mean, D-Hop's impact is clearly gone. It's hurting them a lot. And their defense, we talked about it earlier in the year, they do still have a good defense, but when it comes playoff time and you have to play really, really good wide receivers every week, Marco Wilson. have Marco Wilson, who has actually played relatively well for them, but still, we all know who Marco Wilson is. When he has to go against Devontae Adams on an island, when he has to go against Cooper Cup on an island, who are you taking in that matchup? Let's be real. You know, you, he's going to get absolutely torched. And if the Cardinals defense is getting torched and they don't have DeAndre Hopkins and they have to rely on Chase Edmonds, James Conner, who's been good this year, but Kyle and Kyler Murray's legs to win them games and make up well, for We've these... already seen that doesn't work with Lamar Jackson, who's a better exactly. runner than Kyler Murray. Exactly. I just I think it's really, really concerning for this Cardinals team. And they did it last year where they looked like a uh, playoff caliber team and then they absolutely fell off at the end of the year. They're doing it again. It's like teams figure out Cliff Kingsbury's scheme midseason and their offense goes 
by the wayside. They're their whole team, they're not nearly as good as everyone thought that they were. And I I think that they would get killed by the Packers and Rams. I think that they'd lose to the Cowboys. And then the oh, – who's the other division winner in the NFC? <laughs> the NFC South. I don't know why. Oh, the uh, the Bucks, obviously, yeah. Oh, yeah, and the Bucks. I think that they'd get killed by an even hurt Bucks team. So I think the Cardinals are going to be a first-round exit. And I, this team is just disappointing after what they started like this season. Yeah, three straight losses, one being to the Lions, which is just unbelievably embarrassing. Um, the Cardinals are not that great of a team. I mean, they did start out 8-0, and but then you had a really bad loss to the Panthers, which you get blown out by a bad Panthers team. You lose to – you honestly get blown out by a bad Lions team, a horrifically bad Lions team. Yeah. You lose to the Rams close, which is respectable, and then you lose to the Colts close, which is respectable. But the Cardinals have melted down without DeAndre Hopkins, their best player. They're they're getting hurt, and they're just – like you said, his scheme is getting a little bit exposed. But onto our last topic of the day, Justin Jefferson last year was the people's um, rookie of the year, and this year he has gotten even better with 1,450 yards, nine touchdowns, 15 yards per reception. Truly how good amongst the ranks of wide receivers is Justin Jefferson in the NFL? So I'm guilty of when Justin Jefferson was coming out. I didn't think that he was going to be that good in the NFL. I thought that he was a product of his system at LSU, but clearly I'm wrong. I mean, even if you just watch his tape in college, it, he, he wasn't a product of LSU system. But No, he, he wasn't. That was wrong. a really weird take to have, Andrew. I'm not going to lie. And then, yeah, whatever. <laughs> then his rookie year, he has 1,400 yards, 88 receptions. He looks like one of the best rookie receivers ever. And then this year he follows it up with, I mean, we're not we're we still have two weeks left. Fourteen hundred fifty receiving yards, ninety-seven receptions, nine touchdowns. He is he broke the record for most receiving yards in the first two seasons of his NFL career, which I, I believe it was Randy Moss's record before he was. Him. He also broke Randy's Mo- Randy Moss's rookie uh, yardage record as well. Yeah, so he is on pace to shatter every record that can possibly be broken by a second-year wide receiver. And I, he just – he keeps getting better. He – I think that by the end of his career, he's going to be the best wide receiver in Vikings history. And that Whoa. is hard because he has Randy Moss. And Randy Moss – I'm not saying that Justin Jefferson is going to be the second-best wide receiver ever like I think Randy Moss is because Randy Moss was obviously really good with the Patriots too. But I think that Justin Jefferson is going to be the – Best wide receiver in Vikings history, barring any injury, obviously. The only wide receiver in the NFL today that I think is surefire better than Justin Jefferson is Devontae Adams. I don't think that there's another receiver that you can say 100% is better than uh, Justin Jefferson. I, I just don't see it. 2,400 receiving yards in two seasons alone is ridiculous. Or 2,800 receiving yards in two seasons alone is ridiculous. And then you account for the fact that he is a second-year player in the league is just unreal. I, I think that he's going to be the best receiver in the NFL for a lot of years. And right now, I think he's the second best, and he's only in the second year. Uh, I, even though he's hurt, I still think DeAndre Hopkins is better. Um. 
because I think he's a better route runner and I think he has the best hands in the NFL. But as far as top three, honestly, um, I can definitely see where you're coming from. Justin Jefferson has been ridiculous. Like you said, he's broken the uh, – he's already got – he's only he's still got two weeks left to go and he's already broken second-year records. He's broken rookie records. He is productive uh, scoring-wise and yardage-wise. He's a, a great athlete, a great route runner. He has great hands. I don't think it's a bad take, or I think it's actually a really good take to say that Justin Jefferson is top three. I mean, he at least has to be top five at this point. And I think um, everyone who thought Jamar Chase would be better when they were both at LSU, I think even though Jamar Chase is having a pretty good year, really good for a rookie, I think Justin Jefferson is clearly showing that he is the better wide receiver of the two. Um, But speaking of ridiculous rookie seasons, uh, Vegas odds came out today, and Micah Parsons is plus 200 for defensive player of the year as a rookie. Obviously, he has 13 sacks, three forced fumbles, 60 tackles, which is pretty ridiculous. But do you think Micah Parsons is has a real shot as the defensive player of the year as a rookie? I think he does, and it's funny – it's not funny, but ever, most people thought Micah Parsons would be really good coming out of college. Not this good, but yeah, I, no, he, this good. he had the talent, and he fell a little bit in the draft because of the whole uh, locker room scandal that ended up being not true at all. But whatever, regardless, Demarcus Lawrence gets hurt earlier in this year, and Micah Par- they Cowboys originally tried to use Micah Parsons in coverage a little bit, and he was absolutely Which lost. I thought would never work, and that's why I wasn't that high on him, as a, or at least as high as most people, as him as a linebacker prospect. But it never crossed my mind to put him at edge. Yeah, and it didn't – he looked completely lost, and – I remember I have a really one of my really good friends is a Cowboys fan. I, he was he kept telling me Michael Parsons is good, and I kept bringing up the coverage because he was really really bad in coverage. But then Demarcus Lawrence, their stud defensive end, goes down, and the, the Cowboys need pass rush, so they say, "Okay, we'll throw Michael Parsons there. What's the worst that could happen?" And could that have not gone any better? Michael Parsons <laughs> is one of the best edge rushers in the NFL already as a rookie. I think that he has a great shot at winning Defensive Player of the Year this year. I He is way more deserving than Trayvon Diggs. I hate that Trayvon Diggs is top three in the odds for this. I it think is that, crazy that the Cowboys have two of them, though. It is, but I don't think Trayvon Diggs deserves to be there. Obviously, interceptions are a huge part of the game, and they're important because they're a game-changing place. But I'm, they're not the only cornerback set that matters, and Trayvon Diggs lets up a lot of yards and coverage. But that's besides the point. Micah Parsons, the only two players that I hate or that I believe – could win it over him are T.J. Watt, and I hate to be a man of tradition, but Aaron Donald is still really, really good at football, and he is still winning. He's still, I believe, the NFL leader in pass, pass rush win rate and run block win rate at the defensive tackle position, which is just insane. But I, I Miles Garrett has fallen off a lot. Uh, not fallen off because he's still probably arguably the best or second best defensive player in the NFL, but. Uh, he has not done much the past two weeks, and he's. I don't think that he has a shot at winning it over Michael Parsons. So T.J. Watt, Michael Parsons, and Aaron Donald are three. And I, right now, the season ends today. I'd give the award to Michael Parsons. I think that he deserves it. And uh, just our last subject here. Just want to keep on uh, with just the ridiculous rookies. I just want to emphasize how 
amazing this draft class was. Kyle Pitts, my guy. <laughs> Kyle Pitts broke Tony Gonzalez's franchise record for receiving yards as a tight end as a rookie with two games left, and he is just 51 yards away from being the first rookie tight end in NFL history to become a 100 or excuse me, a thousand yard receiver. My guy, Kyle Pitts. Andrew, what are your thoughts on this? <laughs> so, Kyle Pitts is a generational talent at tight end. Everyone knew it coming out. Some people on Instagram uh, decided to label Kyle Pitts a bust after three weeks. I don't really know why. But I'm he, proving everyone wrong, or not everyone wrong. Oh my God, that was totally the wrong word because everyone thought he could be. But the Instagram haters, he's proving wrong. He is already. In my opinion, I think that he's already the fifth best tight end in the NFL. The only ones that I think are better than him are Kelsey Kittle, Mark Andrews, and Darren Waller. And Kyle Pitts is a rookie. I think he's already better than Darren Waller because I think everything Darren Waller is, Kyle Pitts is that but better. I think it's hard because Darren Waller is the entire – Kyle Pitts is also the entire Falcons offense this year. So I guess it's – I don't know. It's hard because they're both really freakishly athletic tight ends. Um, but I think Kyle Pitts is even more freakish, and he also has better hands, and he's also arguably a better route runner. So I think he is just straight up better than Darren Waller already. But it's hard. Darren Waller, I think, was on pace for similar numbers this year. But Kyle Pitts is going to be better than Darren Waller next year if he's not already better. So that it's it's really a moot point. But he he's a top five tight end for sure his rookie year, and he has Matt Ryan, who is a retirement home quarterback at this point. Sorry, Falcons fans. Even though I think most people understand that he's not that good anymore. If the Falcons draft a quarterback this year, which I don't think they do, but Sam if they Howell. do and they get his him a quarterback with some type of arm strength that has a brain to throw to him more, Kyle Pitts is going to be the best tight end in the NFL in the next five years. I mean, Kelsey is old. Kittle is young, but I think that Kyle Pitts will be better than George Kittle at one, uh, at both of their peaks. And I, I mean, anyone that didn't think that Kyle Pitts was going to be a top five tight end in the NFL the day he stepped foot in the NFL, I think, was just being ignorant. It was pretty clear that he was going to be one of the best tight ends in the NFL as soon as he came out of college. And listen, if you're one of the people who are in the corner of Pat Firemuth who think he's better now that he's just scoring more touchdowns than Kyle Pitts, I want to bring up two points. Um, the Falcons system didn't get Julio Jones touchdowns either. And therefore, do you think that Pat Firemuth is a better player than Julio Jones? At least when <laughs> Julio Jones was on the Falcons? No, you probably don't. And second of all, um, since when were touchdowns the standard uh, measuring stick for tight ends? I mean, I really just don't understand because some people I know are joking, but some people genuinely think that Pat Frymuth is now better than Kyle Pitts, despite being worse in every single statistic across the board except touchdowns. I, I, I really don't understand where that corner is coming from besides just biased Pittsburgh fans. But if you're of that opinion – Please stop. I mean, it's just objectively wrong at this point. No point in their careers in college or um, and now the NFL has Pat Fryer truly been a better tight end than Cal Pitts. So let's just, let's just stop being foolish. But um, like I said, this draft class has been ridiculous. I mean, there's still players that are getting no coverage who have had amazing rookie seasons. Patrick Sertan, Greg Newsom, Javon Holland. Um, 
just countless players from this draft class have stepped in and made huge impact. Devontae Smith has been really good, by the way. People don't talk about him because he's not putting up a ton of numbers. He has 820 receiving yards this year. He's in the heaviest run offense in the NFL with Jalen Hurts throwing him the ball, who is a really, really bad passer. And he has 820 receiving yards this year. So he has a chance of passing 1,000 receiving yards. Kyle Pitts is or already passed 1,000 receiving yards, right? We just said that. No, um, Kyle Pitts is 50 yards short. He's 50 yards short, so he's going to pass it. Devontae Smith might pass it. Jalen Waddle is going to pass it. He has 900. He's already broken yards. a Michael Thomas rookie record, I think, for receptions. And yeah, he, he's been incredible. being terribly uh, formed around him. Exactly. And uh, Jamar Chase has already broken 1,000 receiving yards. So we have a potential of five receivers slash tight ends breaking 1,000 receiving yards. And then also Amal Ross St. Brown has been ridiculously good as a rookie, uh, as well as Panay Sewell, um, both for the Lions. This draft class is – I mean, it's, I genuinely it's, think it's the best draft class ever. I said it <laughs> when they were just a draft class. You remember I, I was saying yeah. that. And now that the rookies are actually playing, I mean, they're still rookies, and I'm still going out on a limb and saying this is a better draft class than, what, 2011? That's the one everyone loves, you know, with Cam Newton, uh, Jones, Patrick, Peterson, et cetera. I think this is a better draft class than that. I genuinely think this is, A, the best receiving class ever by far. And just in general, the best draft class. I mean, we have uh, the wide receivers are some of the best in the NFL already. Some of the corners, Sertan, Newsom, are making immediate impact. J.C. Horn was playing pretty good when he was alive. Um, <laughs> we have uh, a defensive player of the year. Oh, and we've somehow forgotten to talk about Mac Jones, who is leading his team to a playoff berth uh, as a rookie quarterback. Um, and that's the only rookie quarterback we're going to bring up. Um, <laughs> but this has just been a ridiculously talented class, and they're just rookies, and we're still going to have guys who start to shine as uh, veteran NFL players. Yeah, I there's just I'm really excited to see where they go. I think 2016 is another one. That's the Jared Goff Carson Wentz year, which I mean, gross first two picks. But after that, I think the rest of the top ten have all been all uh, pro players already. But I think this class is already better, or not already better, but on pace to be better than that one. I I I do remember you saying it a lot. I remember a lot of draft scouts, Daniel Jeremiah, I believe, said it too. Uh, that this was arguably the most talented draft class of all time, and it's definitely holding true so far in their very, very young career. And it's funny because the quarterback class was supposed to be one of the best parts of it, and it's been by far the worst part of it, but they're all rookie quarterbacks. If they improve even marginally, I mean, if they improve and they keep getting better, this class is going to be one of the best ever, and like you said, it definitely has potential to be the best ever. I remember everyone was saying that the uh, the DBs, this was before when I started doing my scouting on Instagram, um, back when I did run my college football page. Uh, people were just constantly berating this DB class, saying it was bad, and then I really started to look into it, and the DB class was fantastic. I mean, safeties and corners, nickels, boundary corners, strong safeties, free safeties, any type of DB you wanted, you could get a talented player from the draft class. And the DBs, which is the hardest position to play as a rookie, um, have been good. Like I said, Greg Newsom, Patrick Sertan have been some of the better corners in the NFL, as well as Javon Holland, who's been one of the better safeties in the NFL. So, yeah, th- this draft class is ridiculous from day one, and I'm so ready to see these guys develop. But um, 
that is about all. There wasn't that busy of a weekend because it was Christmas. I hope you guys had a great Christmas. So I did. Um, and we'll see you guys next week for hopefully a more action-packed episode. Uh, see you guys. See you guys. Happy New Year.